Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 115 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gottlieb. Joined this week, unfortunately, not by Jerry Thompson. But I do have the next best thing. Now regular Game Podcast contributor, mm-hmm. Mr. Cedric Phillips. Cedric, you keep this up. I'm going to upgrade you to friend of the podcast. I'm telling <laughs> you right yeah. now. Hell yeah. You're, I got you're him on sick. the cuss. I got him sick again, boys. Got him good. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to think there might be something to this whole Cedric is slowly poisoning Jerry thing. I mean, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent on board, but I'm a lot closer than I was the last time. Well, I know where he lives and we are at the same show. Kind of adds up, doesn't it? Sorry about that whammy. There's always all like, there's always these meetings right before he gets sick. Like sometimes they're a week out, but this one was only like, I mean, in fact, he was contemporaneously sick while in your presence. We were doing the Sunday cast of SCG Indianapolis when he started to feel really crappy. And you were right there, like in arm's reach of Jerry at that point. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Have you seen season one of Jessica Jones? I have not. Okay. Well, it's actually pretty good, mostly for the villain, Purple Man, whose other name is escaping me. It starts with a K and it's not Killmonger. It's something else. But- um, basically, this villain, Purple Man, ha- he, he releases to- – he's like a normal human being, but he releases toxins. He was play- It was played by David Tennant, if name, if, uh, if I have that name correct, the English actor. Okay. And, and this person releases toxins, and once like you're in range of his toxins, he can control your behavior. So he can tell you to do whatever he wants, and you have to do it, right? So if he is just like, yo, go grab some scissors and stab yourself, you just – even though you don't want to, you're doing it against your will. He just has complete control of you, right? So – what I'm doing is I am releasing my toxins on Jerry whenever he is even remotely close to me to get him sick. And this is just working out beautifully. You're going to have to rename the podcast to the uh, something that involves a C. I don't know what, but yeah, this is, I, this is my big plan. <laughs> that could go to a lot of bad places, so I won't come up with any names on the spot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I am thrilled to have you here, Cedric. And I'm glad that we have some shared experience to pull from because I want to talk a lot about New Standard today. I want to go through another set of Magic Online results. That's usually what we do in the first couple of weeks of the format here on the Game Podcast. We like to really see what's out there on Magic Online and kind of compare and contrast that with what happened in whatever the week one tournament was. And it just so happens that you and I both broadcast the week one tournament. We were at SCG Indianapolis, as I mentioned, and it was a really eye-opening experience to kind of be there in the thick of things, but not playing because I got to see the narrative of the tournament like slowly take shape. Essentially, it became very clear that everyone had figured out Sultai was the real deal. And there was this huge swell going into rounds like six, seven, eight, where it just started to feel like Sultai was absolutely insurmountable and it was everywhere and all the best players were playing it. 
And then we started seeing little like pinpricks of sunlight shining through. Here is like an Esper sprinkling here. And here is some, is it Drake sprinkling there? And then we got to day two and the skies opened up and there was these beautiful bright rays of sun shining down upon us in the form of Esper mid-range, Esper control, is it Drake's Azorius aggro? And it looks like we have a really, certainly in the formative stages, but a real interesting metagame developing right now. What was your takeaway having watched week one from the same position I did? Well, honestly, there was a lot to take away from the weekend. Um, You know, with like you, pardon me, you know, coming into the weekend, I had some ideas of what to expect, right? You know, I'm also the editor for the website, so I know what uh, the brain trust, for lack of a better term, is thinking. Tom Ross is thinking that Mono Red's going to be busted, and it was destroying Arena. Coming in, obviously, Todd Anderson's writing about Woodenness Reclamation, and everyone's scared of the card and all all the things it can do, along with Bant Nexus and all the things that that deck can do, because when it wins, it's it's it looks completely insane and unbeatable. But mm-hmm. after the first handful of rounds, it became readily apparent that Saltai is just a Golgari deck that's splashing Hydroid Crassus. And you can go a little bit deeper in that blue splash if you want to with some counter magic, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But as far as a week one deck is concerned, do I think that this Saltai deck is going to be the best deck six weeks from now? Probably not. It's a very beatable deck, but if you're looking for something safe that had a good mono red matchup, or at least a good enough one, you got to play back and forth long games in the mirror. So if you had a skill advantage, you got to really flex your muscles on that. And then also being good enough against the initial versions of Wilderness Reclamation, there's, it's no surprise to me that this deck won the tournament. It really isn't. Yeah, such a safe choice. And there's like kind of this just instilled safety in the package of four Jade Light Ranger, four Merfolk Branch Walker, four Wild Growth Walker. Whenever you're using that as your foundation, it's really hard to go completely wrong, right? Like you have access to really good mana. You have that huge life gain hurdle that a lot of decks just simply, it's like, do you have the Lava Coil or not? Because if you don't, you're in for a world of hurt. You know, even Drake's experiences that to some extent. They really need to deal with Wild Growth Walker preemptively, because as soon as it hits five toughness, it's a problem. And it's a problem that can easily take over the game. And installing that as the core of your mid-range deck is almost like such a freebie. It feels so good, especially when you don't know what everyone else is up to. Well, you got to think about it a couple different ways, right? If you're coming to a week one tournament where you know Mono Red is the best deck, it's so easy to go, all right, well, I'm going to do something with Wild Growth Walker. But if I'm thinking as a shark and a shark mentality, all I want to do in a magic tournament in a lot of instances, especially where I may think that I am more tested or just have more skill than my opponents, is I just want to be able to get to play games of magic. Yep. That's my Playlands goal. cast spells. That's Absolutely. It. And the chips will fall where they may. If, again, if I feel like I have a skill advantage or maybe I have something, I've brought something to the table that people may not be ready for a specific sideboard card or main deck card, as an example, Biogenic Ooze. Sure. I'm, again, I'm sure we'll talk about that card at some point, but that's what this Salti deck allows you to do. You get to play. And I liken it to the format that had temples in them. You think about mm. the Obzon decks that had temples in them. Look, scrying when you're Reed Duke or someone else who is great, they just want to get to play magic because if they get to play magic with you, they are probably going to beat you. That's what Merfolk Branch Walker and J Light Ranger allow you to do is you get to hit your land drops. You get to control your draw steps. I know Explore doesn't say scry, but it basically is body right. attached. And all of a sudden, yeah, let's play 10 turns. Let's see who's going to win then. The person with more skill or not. And the nice thing is, is that if they have to play all of these turns, they've got weapons against red. They've got weapons for the mirror. They've got weapons for Nexus. 
it all just kind of makes sense for the first week. Maybe things will change. It's funny. The way we used to achieve that kind of guarantee of playing magic is by playing like 26, 27 land blue decks. Now you just play green decks because green consistently keeps getting these tools that are these, you know, mana slash draw smoothing engines. Think back to things like tireless tracker and just a host of really good green mid range cards that have existed over the last three to five years. And it's funny how the pendulum has shifted in that color's direction as kind of like the pros color. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, the way that green decks and green cards are designed now, you mentioned Tireless Tracker. We can't forget about Courser of Crew Fix right. and just other ways to ensure that at the end of the day, you're going to hit your land drops. You're going to get to play a game of Magic. Now, if your deck is not built correctly, that's going to be a problem. And that's where some players flex their muscles in the Saltime Mirror over others. But yeah, these green decks are ultra consistent. They're powerful. I don't think that they're too powerful. And there are ways to get edges both with them and against them. It's a kind of a great first step into what could be a really, really good standard format. Yeah, and that transitions really well to the core of our show today. We're going to be talking about the Magic Online Standard Constructed League. These are the decks that were posted on January 28th, 2019. So head on over to your browser, type in like Magic Online deck lists in the Google machine, and it'll bring up the right page. And just look for these January 28th standard constructed league results, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about here. And I like to do this in contrast to just going over the SCG results is because I feel like there's enough literature out there on the SCG results, right? Like you can go to StarCityGames.com. You can read all the articles. Everyone is talking about that metagame and what exactly you're supposed to be doing with those decks that appeared in the top eight. I want to look for the next step though. I want to look for the future. Like what's out there that wasn't brought to SCG, but potentially could make some inroads as we continue down this road. You know, we're heading to Baltimore this week for a team tournament. It's hard to pull a lot of concrete data out of a team tournament, but still you're going to see a lot on camera. We're going to see what standard cards interact with each other and how they play off each other. And I think we can get a really good idea of what might work and what not, what might not work by going through these deck lists. So let's get into it. And we're going to start with a list by AK. AK. And AK played Judith. And if you watch Jerry and I cover SCG Indianapolis, you know that basically every round we did a Judith check and we failed that Judith check every single time. And AK here is playing. It's it's not quite the aristocrats list because it doesn't have priest of forgotten gods, but it's got a lot of the same hallmarks. We're looking at like four gutter bones four fire blade artists. So there's a lot of sacrifice outlets. We're just not having the same kind of aristocrats ish engine. Cedric, what do you think about red, black aggro in this vein? It seems like it should have a place in the format, doesn't it? I think it does have a place in the format. The mana base is a little bit concerning with eight swamps, six mountains, and then eight dual lands, but it probably works well enough. Here's here's the question I ask myself when I look at this deck and any red-black deck or Rakdos deck that we're going to see moving forward. It's obviously going to include Judith, and the question is, is how good is your deck when you don't draw Judith? Because your deck is going to be supercharged when you draw Judith, so I don't want best-case scenario. I can talk about best-case scenario all day long. I want to talk about worst case scenario where my draw steps are Vicious Conquistador and Gutter Bones and Fireblade Artist. And are things still going according to plan if I don't draw my best card? At least with this deck, it appears the answer is yes, because the backup threat to Judith is Spawn of Mayhem. 
Right. A card that card. it's very powerful. We didn't see any of it at SCG Indianapolis whatsoever and nope. no Judith for what it's worth. And touching on that tournament briefly, the reason for that, I think, is because people were unsure of how to build the deck. And it's so easy to just take Algari, splash Hydroid Crisis, move on with life or copy paste them on a red deck. However, this is a little bit more difficult to get right the first go. And I think that AK did a really nice job of this. Spawn of Mayhem fulfills a very interesting spot in this metagame because for this deck, we're looking at Fanatical Firebrand, Gutter Bones, Conquistador, so that's 10 ones. We've got Ritz Mahdi Reveler is a two. We have Fireblade Artist is a two. Instigator is a two. So we've got 12 twos and 10 ones. So that's 22 creatures before uh, Spawn of Mayhem would get onto the battlefield. So the likelihood that you're able to trigger Spectacle on turn three, very high. Yeah, it looks good. So that part checks out. That part looks good. To me, you have to be a little bit more swamp heavy than mountain heavy because of the spectacle cost and normal cost on Spawn of Mayhem because you want to cast it on the third turn of the game. But if you can, and this deck appears as though it can, the one thing that this deck checks for me is that this is a flyer that can do something before Vivian Reed gets onto the battlefield. Too often this past weekend, I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, I would see someone cast horrible Lyra Dawnbringer because it was horrible all weekend, and just watch it get shot out of the sky. I think people needed to relearn the lesson that Lyra is a much better sideboard card than a main deck card. And we had to learn that lesson when Lyra was first released as well. I remember starting Lyra's in my main deck and just being like, oh, this card's kind of stupid. Like, it just dies constantly. It's going to have the exact same problem in this format. Nothing has changed. Lyra is still a better sideboard card than a main deck card without a doubt and the vivian reed problem is a real one like you have to be conscientious of that card because it is so important in the format do you remember when we didn't think vivian reed was that good of a card like consensus was this was a miss as a planeswalker and i'm thinking back and it's like how how did we get to that point where we didn't respect this card it makes almost no sense in retrospect because it was just another five mana planeswalker that draws a card and kills the thing and has an ultimate that ultimately wins you the game. And it's so easy to get caught up in the fact that, oh, this is what all five mana planeswalkers look like. And no one plays four of them. And it's not as good as Chandra. And it's not as good as Jace. So who cares? The reality is, is that a lot of people care right now because the card is absolutely fantastic in the metagame. And it's going to continue to be great in the metagame because if anyone goes towards flyers like Lyra or Hydroid Crisis, it's going to be good against them. It's good in the green mirrors. Sure, it's not that great against red decks a decent amount of the time, but there's also red decks that play Experimental Frenzy, and you're going to need that card to kill that. And the fact that it kills enchantments is so valuable. So Patrick always likes to say that metagames are ecosystems and you don't know what's going to be good in them. Well, in this particular one, at least for week one, Vivian Reed is very, very good. Yeah, you know, part of the catch to that was that when all Planeswalkers look like Vivian Reed, then it's kind of understandable that Vivian could get lost in the shuffle. Now that Planeswalkers don't look like that anymore, and they don't, Planeswalkers are very different presently. We're starting to appreciate what we had, I think, and Vivian continues to just beat up on this format. One thing I will say here, AK was a little bit optimistic with these sideboard Goblin Chain Whirlers and eight Swamps in their deck that seems absolutely bonkers to me a touch a little yeah. <laughs> I, w- I would pass on those but otherwise i like the idea of black red aggro i've always said i think judith will find a spot when if esper control becomes the default control deck and you're routinely getting wrath and you need a way to keep pressure up through wraths and then these things like gutter bones get some more synergies some more points 
And I could see Judith then getting a chance to shine. But it was so surprising not to see any copies at all in Indianapolis this past weekend. Whenever, Brian, I'm looking at an aggressive red-based strategy, which this one's a little black heavy because of spawn, but whenever I'm looking at a strategy like this, um, you have to look at it and figure out what your deck is. Are you an aggressive red deck that is one that is just a metagame deck like we have seen in the past? Uh, I think of the Jund metagame way back when, when there was Putrid Lynch, Putrid Leech, pardon me, Sprouting Thranax and all that other stuff, which it was clearly the best deck, but there was a metagame red deck that had main deck copies of Quenchable Fire, Mm-hmm. And a bunch of really bad cards, right? Yeah. It, it, Goblin Guide was far and away its best card. The rest of the cards were horrible, but it was trying to poke a hole in the metagame. Is this, is my red deck that? In this instance, it's not. Is my red deck the one that had Stoke the Flames and Abbot of Carol Keep and all of these awesomely powerful cards? So not only is my red deck just a really good aggressive deck, but it's just loaded to the brim with powerful cards. When my red deck is that, that's when I'm interested. When I look at AK's deck, I'm looking at a Rakdos aggro deck that, yes, it's got some knuckleheads that are one and two drops, but Judith is an obscenely powerful card. That is, I want to make sure that's a mythic rare. That's a normal rare. Excuse yeah, me. This is a rare. Rick's Mati Reveler is a very powerful card. It's flexible. When we did our initial uh, podcast uh, with you and Jerry, I believe, maybe it was just you and I, I can't remember at this stage, but just going over the cards that were initially previewed, uh, for this set, we immediately were just like, yeah, Rick's Mighty Reveler is awesome. We don't even have to talk about it. And then Spawn of Mayhem is a mythic rare that can be played ahead of schedule, especially if you're on the play. You're going to be able to trigger Spectacle regularly. And the text on that card is complete chaos. Yeah. I mean, these aggressive cards are super powerful. And we're going to get to the mono red deck in a little bit. But I think that trend continues when we get to mono red. Let's move on to our next deck here. This basically, I, I mean, pretty much what's going to be by the book Sultai now. There's going to be some decisions to be made. I will say, though, the decisions being made in this particular list, I like a lot. The ones in particular, I'm very high on. First of all, the full four Hydroid Crisis. Don't mess around. This is, for the time being, the best card in standard. Things can change, but right now, this is the best card in standard. The other response I really like to Hostage Taker, a great response to the best card in standard. There's nothing better than casting your opponent's Hydroid Crisis. And then the last card I like a lot in this particular list is the Hadana's Climb. And I think that's because when both players are basically not gated in resources, and that's the way these Sultai Mirrors tend to play out. You get to a late game point where you have all the mana and all the cards in the world, and you're just chaining crisis after crisis. You need a way to end the game. And I think Hadana's Climb checks that box very efficiently. I like the way this particular build is set up. And I also, the, the one point I can't really figure out, so it's very important to be able to utilize your mana effectively when you lean into these four Incubation Druid, four Llanowar Elf configurations. And the main way you want to do that is with Krasis, obviously. But a lot of these decks are including Growth Chamber Guardian as well. And I like that conceptually as a mana sink. The problem is those four fours almost never matter. Things get so big and so bogged down in these Golgari mirrors that it's really difficult to find a good spot to push Growth Chamber Guardian into the red zone a lot of the times. Now, obviously, there's other matchups where Growth Chamber Guardian is absolutely going to shine, but it's got some problems with shock. It's a little bit afraid of lightning strike. So I'm not 100% sold on Growth Chamber Guardian in this deck right now. The rest of this list, I think, is near perfect and almost exactly what I want to be doing in my Sultai list. So you pointed out the card that I dislike in this list, and Growth Chamber Guardian was a card that I was not impressed with at any point 
doing coverage of SCG Indianapolis. Conceptually, you think it would be good, like you mentioned. It gives you a mana sink, it gives you card advantage, it gives you all of these things. And this particular deck list that we're looking at here by Fall Leaf has issued Wild Growth Walker for Growth Chamber Guardian, which means mm-hmm. I- ideally I'm not really that worried about Red or Rakdos or some other hyper-aggressive deck that's got reach. Okay, fine. If this person's making that decision, then they have very clearly geared their deck towards winning these green mirrors. There's two main deck copies of Raska Golgari Queen. There's four Growth Chamber Guardian because Wild Growth Walker is not particularly good in the mirror. It's good in very specific draws and circumstances, but it's not really the card that you're really into. And then Incubation Druid in combination with Lanaro Elves gives... Uh, fall leaf the ability to ramp past the opponents maybe hit a vivian reed ahead of schedule start chaining hydroid crisis um and just kind of do that whole thing but for me i get i get the deck building that is going on here by shooing wild growth walker for growth chamber guardian i'm just not convinced growth chamber guardian is that good yeah i'm kind of with you i see applications for it there's some matchups where it's really going to shine and that's fine you know cards have there's different configurations you want to use depending on the metagame. And I think if I was going into a control-heavy metagame, like there was just tons of Esper control everywhere, maybe I love Growth Chamber Guardian. I don't think we're quite at that point. I would pass on Growth Chamber Guardian for the time being and still have my Wild Growth Walkers. When we get to the sideboard, I want to point out Thought Erasure here, which is not something I saw every Soul Titleist doing. Uh, it should be going forward. I think Thought Erasure absolutely proved itself as a staple of the format this past weekend. And I expect Sultai decks to pick this card up on Moss. Oh, you mean you mean castigate that make sure you hit that make sure you hit your third land drop? Yeah, turns out that's pretty good, right? Yeah. I don't know if you were playing during the Solar Flare days when this deck oh, used to I play. was. Okay, so like Castigates and Persecutes and Skeletal mm-hmm. Vampire and all that stuff. Castigate was just outrageously good every time I cast it. And that was, you know, that was like a decade ago when I used to win a bunch. Oh, those were the days. I, I look at Thought Eraser and I just see, okay, so this is Obviously, Castigate Exiles and Thought Eraser doesn't, but I'm going to keep with my Castigate Parallel. So this is Castigate that makes sure that, like, if I kept the Sketcher, I hit. Like, if I kept a, a Landlight Hand, I'm probably going to hit. Or I can put a Creature in my Graveyard for Find. Or I can fix my Mana. Or I can make sure I draw a spell. Like, this discard spell is completely nuts. It is nuts. It really is. And we'll talk about it in the context of Esper as we move through these decks. But I felt like you can track a lot of the reason why Esper found success to this particular card. Let's move on to this next list here. It's by Ghash77. And honestly, I I don't want to say anything about this list because I've said enough. Cedric, I want you to talk about this. Nexus of Gates! Nexus of Gates! This is is not Nexus of Gates. There's there's no Nexuses here. This is the mid-range Gates deck. Whatever. I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to let okay. you speak on this deck, and I'm either going to tell you why you're a genius or an idiot. Let's see which one it is. Oh, God. Well, I haven't got to, like, play or watch this deck very much. Look, there's obviously this. There's obviously a power level here that's that's relevant. Gatebreaker Ram should cost four mana, and I'm not sure why it costs three. <laughs> so that part is a little weird to me. Every time I look at the card, I'm like, that's just a four mana four four. It's like, nah, it's just a three mana four four. And also, it should have either Vigilance or Trample, but not both. So yeah, so I look at that card, and it's obviously very, very pushed. Gate Colossus is probably totally fine. Guild Summit, I think, is very, very, very good. Does enough to stay alive with the combination of Gates of Blaze and Deafening Clarion. That this deck, honestly, it weirdly reminds me of just like Cruel Ultimatum, Vivid Control that Chapin used to play way back when. And I think that if you were to take a look at that deck 
uh, that Chapin used to play and really worked on that five color control deck with the vivid and vivid lands plus reflecting full mana base and try to convert it a little bit here. You probably can. This deck is extra greedy, but it's able to get away with this because of the sweeper effects that it has. And the fact that, you know, you might just play Gatebreaker Ram and it's like, well, this is just, you know, the wall into putting you into the abyss. There are games that you might win where you just get to go like Gatebreaker Ram, Gatebreaker Ram. Uh, you have things, sweep them away. Or, you know, the, the lifelink half of Deafening Clarion is very real. Or like I play two Rams and I play Securitas Route and just like two more gates. Like this deck has so much going on. And I imagine the mana base works well enough that like this is a real thing that people can do. And yeah, I, you know, gates have a bad rap because, you know, they're limited cards only. But I don't think that's true anymore. I think this is I think we're going to get to the point where this is the real deal. You're a genius. You, you have passed your test well. Gates, you're, you're exactly right. Gates are the real deal. The payoffs are tremendous. I am not going to keep beating my head against the wall trying to comp- convince people of this because I think people are coming around now. I'm starting to see more and more people being like, oh, wait a second. I think these gates might be pretty good. I think the Nexus setup is even better than this deck. And I think it's harder to figure out too. And there's more room for play. I think there's some really brilliant things going on. I saw the fourth place list in the Moto PTQ played 20 gates in their Nexus of Gates deck. And my head literally exploded because I'm here struggling, like battling with myself saying, am I really going to play 14 gates? I must be an absolute idiot. There's no way a deck can successfully exist having that many tap lands. And then this person plays 20 and I'm like, well, wait a second. I got to at least explore this. And I add two more gates to my list and it just makes the list better. And then I add two more gates to the list and it just makes the list better. And there's so much we don't understand about these gate payoffs right now. If you're not exploring this deck, you're missing out. That's all I'm going to say. And if you haven't played games with or against this deck and you're just dismissing it out of hand, you're making a grave mistake. And thus ends my spiel on gates for this cast. So I did a quick little search of, I just typed in shape and cruel control. And mm-hmm. it is insane because this was like, I can't believe I'm say this. This was like almost 11 years ago right. uh, where he used to play, you know, five color control with the vivid mana base. And so I'm looking at how many vivid lands he used to play, which is four, eight, nine, 10, 11. And then if I count reflecting pool as like some sort of a hybrid vivid land, we're talking about positive fi- harmony say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about 15 land, 15 ish, like, gates or lands that are reliant on gates and he played 26 lands and then the rest is just some mishmash of like pain lands and uh filter lands and all and all this other stuff right so you can like kind of build your mana base off of that but chapin kind of set the bar for what you could do with like stretching a mana base where a lot of your lands enter the battlefield tapped and it's like okay well i'm playing off curve then how much does this hurt me well much like the gates deck that exists now Chapin was playing very powerful cards to make up for the fact that his lands under the battlefield tap. Cryptic yep. Command, Esper Charm, Cruel Ultimatum, which is obviously much later in the game, Moldrifter, Cloud Thresher, Jace Bellerin, Wrath of God, Pyroclasm, stuff like that, where, yeah, you don't have Wrath and Pyroclasm, you have Gates of Blaze and Deafening Clarion instead, which are totally fine rehashes of having the same effect. Uh, and then you just kind of fill out the cards. Like, if, 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 if Chapin had access to... I don't know, Vivid Breaker Ram, <laughs> where, right. you know, it gets plus one, plus one for each Vivid Land you control and also gets Trample and Vigilance. Yeah, he would have played that. Why does that card cost three mana? If you've played this deck at all and you put a 
10-10 or 11-11 Gatebreaker Ram into play, you know how farcical this card is. You're like, this is better than anything else I can be doing. Meanwhile, you have more card advantage than any other deck in the format. You have the best sweeper in the format. Whatever, I'm starting again. I have to stop. We have to go to the next deck list. All right, let's go. So let's go. go off. Let's, let's go. Uh, this is from Master Shonen, who was playing Big Gruel here. Again, another deck list we didn't really see much of. Playing some of the most powerful possible fatties. We see four Steel Leaf Champion, four Skargon Hellkite, four Pelt Collector. This deck wants to get on board fast and big, and it's using Domri to do so, which is another card that just completely missed the boat when we were in Indianapolis. This seems very much like your style, Cedric. Is this a deck that appeals to you? Actually, not even a little bit. Wow. Times have changed for you, huh? Well, so here's the problem I have with this deck. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep going back to my history and, and drawing parallels. So back in 11 or 12 of this decade, I used to play a deck that I deemed the Unfriendly Skies. Okay. Which was uh, a Jund aggro deck that had uh, Thunderball Hellkite and Falconrath Aristocrat on the splash. Okay. And then it had various other creatures. It had like Flint of Boar. It had Arbor Elf, Gyre Sage. And I think Elvish Mystic was legal then. So it, you had eight mana accelerants. I also played Gyre Sage. You had your dumb Burning Tree Emissary draws that actually happened to be a human to go alongside a Falkrath Aristocrat. And then you also had Borderland Ranger to kind of tie the room together and also help with the splash. But what this deck was predicated on was haste because haste was very good in the format. And haste actually right. allowed you and flying was very good in the format because it allowed you to be Thragtusk. Great stuff. This deck, I look at this deck and I just see a bunch of knuckleheads with no plan outside of Got a bunch of knuckleheads. Right. I don't know. Is a bunch of knuckleheads beating people? Maybe, I guess. Like, I look at this deck and I'm just, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I'm not really entirely sure or convinced that this deck beats Sultai ever. And I don't think their sideboard is good. I'm right there with you. I, I think this deck is predicated on keyword big and big doesn't matter right now. And no, that's that, yeah, that's that. Yeah, see, that's that's a perfect way to break it down. It is keyword big, and there are times, right, where just big, bigger, biggest is good enough. Oh yeah, but I don't think that's right now. I really don't. I'm with you. I want to move on to the next deck because I actually do really like the next deck. This is from oh, Storm's yeah. Fury, and we are looking at Azorius Aggro, and so this looks a lot like the Pro Tour era mono white decks with some. Small new additions, and I say small, but they're actually huge because we now have Deputy of Detention. And Deputy of Detention is so good in this deck. Like, you're so dependent on just having a creature constantly, always getting paid on your venerated Loxodons, getting paid on your Benelish Marshals. You just want bodies. And the fact that you've moved your Conclave Tribunal effect onto what is now another creature is so, so good for this deck. And it also got Unbreakable Formation, which, by the way, is just like sneaky awesome. It's such a good instant for this deck to have. It's better than uh, Pride of the Conquerors that I was previously playing. It's different from Heroic Reinforcements, but if I mean, if you were to give me the choice between playing with this Blue Splash or playing Heroic Reinforcements, I certainly choose this Blue Splash right now, especially because you get access to Sideboard Negate, which is really good. Another really good Sideboard card we see lurking here, Takatliana Guard. Last time that these Golgari-based decks kind of up, rose up, it was Takatliana Guard's job to check them. And here's a white deck that has access to that, as well as this really nice kind of fish-esque game plan when it leans on the negates and spell pierce, and just upgraded its removal suite by moving it to the 
removal on a stick now. I think this deck got a lot of sauce, and I think it's kind of being overlooked right now. So you know who you're talking to, right? Someone who loves small white creatures. That's correct. So do you want... What do you think of this one? Do do we just move on to the next thing? Or should I tell you for how long? This is going to be like the Gates thing. Right. I'm going to cut you off. Let's go. Deck's great, right? Deck's great. I love it. You love it. We're moving to the next one. I'm going to go into it briefly. I'm going to go... Because okay, I do have, a, I do have a slight problem. I do have a slight problem. So I agree with you. The deputy attention is very good. A blue sources is worrisome. Let's go sure. back. Let's do it. Let's do a history lesson. I, Cedric Phillips, top eight at a pro tour with white red Kithkin. I was playing four copies of a Johnny Vengeant with eight red sources in my main deck. Mm-hmm. However, I also had Windbrisk Heights, which is indirectly another source of red mana in some instances, right? It's able to reveal a Johnny Vengeant, cast it, blah. It's obviously not a direct red source, but it helped assist in casting that card. My concern here is that there will be games where you draw deputy attention and you cannot cast it or you cannot cast it on time where it would matter. If you could guarantee me that a blue source of mana is in my hand every game, you got me. I am so on board for this. That is my only concern because that card is obviously powerful. I adore Unbreakable Formation because this is the first time that I've read it, full disclosure. (laughs) It does a lot of stuff. I think it's one of those that crept under the radar for a lot of people, but this is like the white weenie deck's dream card, 100%. Yeah, this does so much stuff for three mana. It's it's outlandish. So I'm totally into that. Replacing Conclave Tribunal, I, I'm not convinced it's correct just yet, but I'm willing to buy in. But your assessment of this deck, I think, is very correct. It got some additions, all of which matter. And weirdly, because this always kind of happens during preview season, you know, people want to talk about the new cards, which they should get excited about magic, talk about all the new stuff. I like to look at what did well before and see if, if it got improvements. This style of deck just destroyed the last Pro Tour. Right. It destroyed it. Now, I get that some people, you know, some draft records did well for people and blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, the top four was four Boros decks. That's not an accident. Even if we felt that those Boros decks weren't that good, if you want to have that discussion, okay, well, they got better because they got Tithe Taker, they got Unbreakable Formation, and maybe they don't play red anymore and they play blue for Deputy Detention, and maybe they add an island. And then they have nine blue sources, which I would be a little bit more comfortable with, whatever. The fact of the matter is this. This deck didn't get worse. It only got better. It's just a question now of how much better. And I haven't played with the deck yet to be able to answer that question. But, you know, we're not seeing four Healer's Hawks running around. That's for sure. But should this deck be playing four copies of a Johnny's Pride Mate like Luis was? Maybe, because that's a really good card in combination with Dovenbaum. So there's a couple different ways that you can go here. I'm very interested to see how this archetype continues to evolve. And it was very strange to me that going into the open last weekend, just no one was talking about white based aggro, even though the cards are all really good. I guess that's kind of one of the crosses that this archetype bears, right? Is that there's a a very small group of individuals who are very excited for the next white aggro deck. I think of you, I think of Tom Ross, I think of Craig Wesco, And you guys are just over the moon whenever there's a deck like this. And everyone else has to be convinced. And I probably fell into that camp too. And then I started playing a lot of best of one on Arena. And it turned out my best of one deck back in the day was, in fact, 
the mono white aggro deck. I've, I've since moved on to other things since there's now rankings, but when I just needed to grind like for my tokens or whatever every day, that's the deck that did it the fastest a lot of the time. And I played a lot of it and I thought it was quite good. It has a lot of play to it. It gets itself out of a lot of sticky situations that a white aggro deck typically shouldn't be able to get itself out of. And it just earned my trust. And now when I see it getting upgrades, I'm, I'm really into it and I want to see how far the deck can go. I'm totally in. Totally in. No, nothing else to say. Let's move on to our next deck here. This is from Tomb Simon. I believe that's Simon Nielsen. See, this is Jerry's job. He knows literal everyone <laughs> on the planet's moto name. It's actually uh, insane. And he has for like the past decade. He just knows everyone. It's really unbelievable. So what we're looking at here is kind of a nifty take on Hero of Precinct 1. Basically a Naya-esque build getting some new multicolor cards in the form of Footlight Fiend, which I think is underexplored alongside Hero Precinct 1. This deck also has Flower Flourish, Heroic Reinforcements, four copies of March of the Multitudes. What do you think about this deck, Cedric? This looks like something we haven't quite seen gestate yet, but uh, there's some powerful synergies going on here. I'm into it. I like it. There are some cards that I'm not convinced about just yet because this is basically a tokens deck but it looks like a strange tokens deck right because i see boros challenger and it's like okay well i'm not quite sure what you're doing here and then i see footlight fiend and i'm like well i'm not quite sure what you're doing here (laughs) but i mean there are some there are some nice cards here and there's some nice synergies i mean this is trying to take tokens and, and push it to the limit right that that's kind of the idea uh, which mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. And the card that stands out the most to me, obviously, is Hero of Precinct 1 and, and the wanting to push it, which is why you find these gold cards. I think it's pronounced Shauna, Sisse's Legacy. I hate that card. I, I have never liked this card whatsoever. It's always underwhelmed me in all of these decks. I want to believe. I've tried. I've tried so many times, and this card has always been underwhelming. There's always something blocking it. And if your board presence is so big that this card is problematic for your opponent, aren't you just winning anyway? Like, what situations is this actually changing anything for you? Okay, I could. I guess. I guess my argument, or I, my my counter to that would be, is that the fact that this creature, I think, could very easily be like a five five on the fourth turn of the game, and that's a, and that's a real and that's a real thing, maybe. Right. I- I guess those situations are too few and far between for me. I've had this card just be absolutely abysmal a bunch of times, and it feels like it's a snowball card. Like if this deck is good enough to stand on the quality of everything going on around it, it shouldn't need a payoff like Shauna. That should be extra. And that should make your good games better than they need to be, and it should make your worst games unwinnable. That should be the only thing Shauna is doing if the core around it is properly built. And that's kind of my read on it right now. Okay. Okay. I can get what you're saying. I can definitely get what you're saying. There is one card that's hiding out in the sideboard here that I always secretly keep my eye on because I'm just waiting. Yes. Yeah. This card's powerful. I'm just waiting for like, this card is so weird, but it's obviously powerful. And it's like, at some point, something's going to happen. I do wish the minus one gave not just plus X plus X, but also trample. But some maybe, form of evasion, yeah. Exa- yeah, exactly. But maybe there's some sort of token that has trample or a way to give tokens trample or something that's coming. Who knows? But I always look at Huatli and I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to just on the old back burner here. Not going to forget about you. And that ultimate, which is very easy to achieve, you get an emblem with whenever a creature is a battlefield on your control, you may draw a card. Not hard to chain off. 
So just keep my eyes peeled there. Maybe it's only a sideboard card for against control decks. Maybe that's the case, but they don't print a card like that, in my opinion, and it never sees standard play and be relevant. Yeah, I think that's one of those great backburner cards because it can absolutely just steal a week where mm-hmm. people are not appropriately prepared. And it actually did going back to its release. I remember there was like a Moto PTQ where this Huatli based deck put up a really good showing and may have won the PTQ and maybe like finished first and second. And then it just disappeared off the face of the earth. It was forever gone after that. But there was just like this one second window that a Huatli deck was able to squeeze in and really look impressive. And then everyone adapted around it and it was completely gone. But that's the perfect back burner card. You just got to find that spot again and you get paid. I'm just keeping my eyes peeled. That's all. I think that's a good idea. Let's move on to our next deck here. This is from Volkswagen. And Volkswagen is offering us a kind of Bant-ish look at tokens. Still for March of the Multitudes. Still for Flower Flourish here. There is no Hero of Precinct 1 stuff going on. Instead, we have Hydroid Crisis. Following the trend of just put Crisis in everything, let it sort itself out, see how good it is. No Song of Fraley's nonsense going on here, not looking to really get paid on the Crisis, just using it as a very good card. But this is a 22 land deck, and I get that it has four flower flourish, but it's still a 22 land deck. I, I mean, look, it's unquestionable that the Flying Jellyfish is a super meaningful card. It's very powerful. Does it really belong in every deck, though? Some Somewhere we have to draw the line, and I think this is actually where I draw the line. I'm willing to draw the line here, too. I also just, I'm not as high on that card as everybody else is, truth be told. Like, I think that Hydroid Crisis is good, but I think it's a little bit overblown. Perhaps we will dredge this conversation back up, and I'm very wrong, but... Yes, the card is good. I, I do not think it belongs in everything. I really do think its home is in Saltai Midrange and decks of that ilk. But in a deck like this, I don't. I just don't see it. I went through this phase. I went through the phase of Crisis and everything when I discovered how good it was. And it has some very, very meaningful homes. Wilderness Reclamation decks, it's fantastic in. All those Bant Nexus decks out of the sideboard, it's great. Nexus of Gates, it's fantastic. The Sultai decks where they're doing all the Jade Light Ranger, Merfolk Branchwalker stuff. Again, it's great. It's very meaningful. It's an end game for that deck that sorely needed one where Carnage Tyrant had been kind of invalidated. And both those spots, fantastic. Here, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as good. And eh, people will discover that as time goes on. So so I'm going to, this is my first, I'm throwing the, do you watch football? I'm throwing the yellow flag. Challenge. What do you want to challenge? I think Hydroid Crisis is terrible in Bant Nexus sideboards. Oh, you're crazy. I you're think it's horrible. Crazy. It's, it's so good to be able to, once you've unlocked your Wilderness Reclamation, to have an uncounterable draw engine and then get access to your end step. That's unbelievable for these decks and it basically renders the control matchup a joke because they either have to spend resources dealing with the crisis and that kind of puts them on the back foot what are they going to do counter it great i've drawn my four cards i'll untap and i'll nexus of fate and you'll never get another turn it puts your opponent in completely untenable positions and it snowballs to the next one the thing is if you play like a hydroid crisis it's not going to do anything if you have four in your sideboard though it's a plan in and of itself I think that it is probably okay against control decks uh, because of the cash trigger 
and because the game is going to last a while. I'm willing to buy that, though I'm not entirely sure how good your normal Bant Nexus deck is against like an Esper Control deck. I think that Hydroid Crisis is horrible against mid-range decks that are base green because they're going to leave in Vivian Reed against you anyway mm-hmm. and already game planning for what you're doing. And we, I watched it too many times this weekend of, oh, this person might draw Hydroid Crisis, but like I'm already leaving Vivian Reed anyway. I'm playing it in high numbers and I'm boarding in various things like Duress and Negate. So I'm attacking your Reclamations. I think that if you are some sort of Nexus player out there with Wilderness Reclamation, I like a lot of what Todd was doing, but it just needs to be evolved upon. Um, it is my personal opinion. Maybe we'll get in this, into this at some point during this podcast. Maybe we won't. That your traditional takes of Bant Nexus, I am not surprised that they failed because they're very predictable and their decks in game two and game three get worse, not better. Agree 100%. And I basically said as much in my article this week. That was exactly the problem they had. And I do agree with you that Krasis is not the answer against mid-range decks. There's another X spell that is actually the answer against mid-range decks. Would you like to put a guess what it is? Is it Expansion Explosion? Well, that one's that one's fine. That's that's always going to be fine. But the one I really like and really breaks open those matchups is Mass Manipulation. Oh, yeah. So, see, I can, see, I can buy into that. Mm-hmm. So th- here's here's my real answer. Okay, this is what this is what I think ends up happening is these wilderness reclamation decks as they continue to evolve, their ability to shift into a splinter twin deck is what they're going to have to do. They can do all their wilderness reclamation nonsense game one, right? Because a lot of people just don't have that good of a game one matchup against that. Do your crap, that's fine, and then you get to do the splinter twin dupe you, which is maybe I'm leaving this in, maybe I'm not. But if they are electing not to and boarding in creatures and stuff like that, what I would be doing, or at least what I would be testing, is sideboarding and Niv-Mizzet and dive down. Okay, that's an interesting approach. Assuming your deck can cast it, this is another thing that's happened, right? It's just we're not even having a conversation about Niv-Mizzet anymore, which was the best thing going on at the end of the last standard format. Right. Uh, presumably, they are sideboarding in such a way that they're slowing themselves down to interact with you with Negate and Duress. Negate and Duress don't interact with Niv-Mizzet, but like Vivian Reed does. So maybe I'm going to get my value, maybe I'm not. But I think that the combination of negate uh, of Dive Down and Niv-Mizzet, which is a tried and true combination, because the games are going to slow down after sideboard and you're accelerating, you can get to that. They try to interact with that immediately. They don't, ha- they don't have enough mana to be able to interact with the way that they want to. And then your Niv just starts running away with the game in the way that chaining Hydroid Crasis would. But the fact that you're chaining Hydroid Crasis isn't as good, I guess, as Niv-Mizzet and the way that it dominates a game. You know what's probably better than all of these things? Talk to me. Guild Summit. It oh, just no. is. Like for all these decks, it's it's just such a better way to play this game. I'm sorry, I'm doing it again. Let's move No, on. I mean I think that's just I think I think the Guild Summit, I haven't played a game with it yet, and I unfortunately I didn't get to watch it. I do think that that thing's just completely busted with, with it's that. It's a deck. silly card. It really yeah. is. Let's move on to this next deck. This is from Bubble Boys, I think. Uh, this is Wyatt Darby's deck. Now, we got to see a lot of this deck. Wyatt was on camera a lot, making top eight at SCG Indianapolis. What was your takeaway from what Wyatt Darby brought to the table? So I liked a lot of what Wyatt was doing because he identified some cards that I think are quite good. The the, the two, actually, there's a couple that stand out to me. First of all, <laughs> Castigate, hit your third land drop, Thought Eraser. Okay, that card's busted. So we don't have to talk about that anymore. I love Mortify in the format for pretty obvious reasons. Flexible creature removal enchantments are very powerful in the format, so that's a pretty easy inclusion. Basilica Bell Haunt, I love. I think Card it's very, very fantastic. good if you can cast it. 
Yeah, I absolutely adore it. Good against red. Good, I mean, discarding it, making someone discard a card is not really a bad effect. Body is sized appropriately. Incredible, incredible against red. Yeah, so I love that card. I love, 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 love Thief of Sanity. Because mm-hmm. it's just Night Veil Predator, basically. I mean, I know you can't take lands, but, you know, it's basically the same card. And the rest of this stuff just makes a lot of sense. There's some tuning and some tweaking to be done. I thought that Dovin actually looked good for Wyatt. The only thing that I really don't like in this deck, it continues to be Lyra Dawnbringer. Because I just think that Lyra is so bad except for against red decks. But I don't, I'm not even convinced it's good there because a red deck is going to bring in Fight with Fire or like Collision Colossus preemptively against any deck that can cast Lyra. That I would rather, if my Lyra deck can cast Basilica Bellhaunt or something that's not Lyra, I would much rather do that. Yeah, there's a lot of clunk here, right? I, I think that's the only way to describe kind of the four and five drop slots of this deck is a, a lot of clunk. And the power level of these cards is so high that this deck is able to overcome that. I don't want it to sound like I'm talking down on this, this deck because I've actually played with this a bunch. I really like it. I think it's a nice piece of deck building. I do think there's some things that could be smoothed out. Possibly moving away from Lyra is one of them. You're right that it has some vulnerabilities. And it also oftentimes feels like a little much. This deck is kind of so good against red between Hero of Precinct 1 into Basilica Bellhaunt or Dovin. All those cards line up really well against red. So you don't have to go quite that hard, I think. Maybe there's a little bit more measured approach you could take where you get a little bit wider net to cast. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this deck evolves, but I think this is a really nice baseline for an Esper mid-range deck. Deck's a ton of fun to play. If you like Jund-ish style decks, I think you'll really be in to Wyatt's deck, and I'm interested to see where he goes next with it. Isn't there just some busted multicolor card that you can play over Lyra? Like, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it seems like if I'm in the marker for like just some busted five-mana like creature or spell or something that's multicolored, there's just got to be something better than this thing. I think Angel of Grace is interesting in that slot. Doom Whisper also exists, but a lot of these cards have a lot of the same problem. I, I wish there was something where we were getting a little bit more value as the card came into play. Maybe it's time to just do a gatherer search and look for that top end in the white and black cards and see what they offer you. Uh, I'm sure there's some long forgotten huge flying creature that you know hasn't had a chance to shine yet, but maybe this is exactly where it's supposed to slot in. Yeah, like I just, I just went, I just went to Mythic Spoiler. I'm going to see if I come across anything. All right, you get back to me. Let me know. Let's move on to this next deck. I think it's from Triosk, Triosk maybe. Uh, mono red. This is not my preferred build of mono red. I'll tell you right now. If you want to know the mono red list, I would play. Go over to StarCityGames.com. Look at the lists of which you can see all the lists from day two, and look for Caleb Scherer's list. I believe he finished tenth or eleventh. Basically, I would build Mono Red exactly as he did. And one of the things he did was not play Experimental Frenzy. I don't think you need it right now. I do think Risk Factor is better. But on the whole, the addition of Light Up the Stage and Skewer the Critics has pushed this red deck into the realm of scary red decks that you were talking about before, Cedric. Do you agree with that assessment? I agree with literally everything you just said. First and foremost, get those Experimental Frenzies out of your deck. There are no Sacred Cows in Magic. Risk Factor is a better card right now because this is a burn deck. This is not a creature value deck. This is a burn deck. And Risk Factor, if, you're, if your draw is going well or, you know, just like what you're trying to accomplish, this is a no-win proposition for your opponent. 
There are also a lot of answers to to experimental frenzy in the format right now because of how scared everyone is of wilderness reclamation, and that fear is not going to leave. Ignoring that, what's the deal with light up the stage? You mean like how can how can it exist? What is the deal deal? with this card and it not lasting until end of turn, but end of the following turn? What's the deal? Look, when I read this card, I was like, oh, this is pretty medium. And then five days later, where I'm like, wait a second, this isn't end of turn? Are you kidding me? This goes to your next turn? I, I don't know what the deal is, but it fundamentally changes the card. And I probably talked about it through preview season, not understanding that the card lasted until your next turn. And that's on me. But I, I don't think you can really blame me. This is such an unintuitive card. I think we talked about this on the podcast I did with you and Jerry, because this is one of the cards that was previewed early. And none of us were very excited about this card if memory serves. I think Jerry was the one who was most excited about it because of its upside and potential. But I don't know if he knew that it lasted until the following turn because I didn't know that until like a day before the open. And I'm like, what? The following turn? That's I mean, I guess I got to see it in action. And it took seeing it in action approximately one time where I went, OK, this thing's ridiculous. It's thought cast. Yeah, I, that's the cleanest analog I can make is it, it's just thought cast. And that's an incredible card for these decks to have access to. People ask me a lot about this card in Burn. And my opinion of Burn has always been, well, it's a combo deck. You don't play anything but Burn spells. I'm talking about the modern context right now. You don't play anything but Burn spells. Doing so just messes up your clock and slows you down. It's not actually what you need. And now I think I might just be wrong because where you now have this critical mass of one mana spells, actually exactly what you want is just one more spell one more card that you're going to see throughout the game. And if you move your curve down and you get rid of some of those two drops that you're previously playing and you're replacing them with Skewer the Critics, then I think Light at the Stage actually may have a place in Modern Burn. And that is the exact opposite of what I was previously saying. But I have to reevaluate. This card's too powerful. I haven't seen it cast now. I just want to check my biases and see if maybe there's a new lesson for me to learn as far as Light at the Stage goes. Yeah, so I know people have been asking me because when I stream, I've been streaming Burn and Modern and I haven't changed any cards. I haven't added Skewer and I haven't added Light Up the Stage. Of the two, I'm most interested in trying Light Up the Stage, but I'm really not that interested in trying either. And the reason for that is because how how fast Modern is mm-hmm. and the floor on those cards is so bad because when you're playing Burn, like you mentioned, you want everything to be a Burn spell. Well... I wouldn't play Sorcery Speed deal three damage very often, and Riftbolt occupies that slot, but Riftbolt is flexible. I've seen enough games and played against enough opponents in mirror matches where they're just like, oh, I drew a Skewer of the Critics. It costs three mana on my turn. If I move, I'm dead, and I can't afford to tap three mana on my own turn, but I can afford to suspend Riftbolt on my own, own turn and keep up appearances that I have a Skullcracker or a Lightning Helix. That is my concern with that particular card. Light at the stage, I actually just kind of want to get my hands on and see how it would be in Modern Burn because there is a lot of upside there because, as you mentioned, it is kind of a thought cast. But again, it's the kind of card where if I need to top deck a burn spell and it's just like, ah, I drew light up the stage. Yikes. And in how many spots, though, is that not a redraw? Because it is a redraw. If, if your deck CMC has gone down enough, then it's a redraw anytime you have four mana. And at what point are you just raw top decking where you don't have access to four mana? And to the same extent, I think you can say the same thing about Skewer the Critics, although I will admit your point in the mirror is very salient and I I wouldn't disregard that. But I would also point out 
the burn mirror is like three percent of the metagame maybe four like so i i wouldn't base the decision solely on that although i think your point is very valid it's not a ton but i will also mention that there there are a lot of games where you know you don't draw four lands you stop on three because that's kind of the goal of the deck so is it a redraw maybe yes maybe no i haven't played enough to know but I and like, you know, obviously I have some bias here because I played against the burn mirror and, you know, I'm playing these games where my opponents like, you know, tap three and skewer you or tap three and cast light at the stage. I'm like laughing at them because I'm just like, you can't do that in the mirror. And I'm not sure that you can do that in modern because the format is so fast. But I know people have been having success with those cards in modern. So, you know, I'd like to get them. I'd like to get my hands on them myself and find out. Uh, turning my attention back to this red deck here by Trios really quick before I, I assume we move on to the next one. The only notes I have here is I'm not sure Chain Whirler's good, and I'm not sure how good Runaway's Teamkin is. Of the two, I am least enthused by Chain Whirler because I legitimately just don't think it's particularly good right now. You you may be exactly right, and I know a lot of people are having tons of success on Arena cutting the Chain Whirlers. Now, Arena is a very different world, and I think it's important that we start discussing it as such. There is an algorithm which alters the number of lands you draw, and you should never forget that. And we're also playing best of one. So there are very different considerations. So I'm not using that as definitive proof. I'm just saying I know a lot of people have found success in that fashion on Arena. Do with that information what you will. Now, Cedric, I will say I didn't think anyone on the planet could run their mouths more than Jerry and I. And when we do these things, we tend to have to speed ourselves up a little bit. But you and I are so glacial in our pace that I'm actually putting a staunch limitation on us. We're going to take a moment. We're each going to find two more decks we want to talk about, because we've already been at this for over an hour, which is kind of unbelievable given how far we've gotten. So let's find our two favorite decks that we really have something to say about. We'll do those, and then we'll call it a day on this modern deck dump. Otherwise, we're going to make people's ears bleed because we just can't shut up. Okay, I'm in. Fortunately, my next deck I want to talk about is right here because it's an archetype I have been invested in. This is also, I don't I don't know if this is Andrew or Danny Jessup's account, or maybe they share an account, who knows? Although I think that's against the TOS, so don't share magic online accounts, kids. Yeah, how dare you? This is, this is Oliver Hart and a 5-0 with, is it Drake's? And this looks a lot like the list we saw Brad Carpenter playing at the Open. Four of Crackling Drake, four of Enigma Drake, four of Terramander. And my God, was I impressed with Terramander when that card was in play. It looked so freaking good. The fifth point of toughness is an absolute game changer. It's a very proactive clock from a deck that wanted to be low to the ground. It wanted a low mana count. Like, look at this spell base. Four Discovery Dispersal, three Dive Down, four Op, four Shock, three Spell Pierce. Then we have four Lava Coil, one Beacon Bolt as our removal spells. This feels much more like a modern or legacy deck than a standard deck. And I love that Terramander has the capacity to turn Charter Course into an actual card advantage spell. That's such a significant upgrade for this deck, which is very adept at spinning its wheels and finding the card it wants, but not necessarily good at generating card advantage. Now it actually has a path to card advantage via the Terramander chart a course combination. What are your thoughts on Is It Drake's as it stands right now? And I do want to point out before I pass it over to you, the last time it seemed like a base Golgari deck was going to get absolutely out of control, it was Is It Drake's that stepped in 
this time in the form of arc like Phoenix, but it stepped in and saved the format from being taken over right at the start. And it may be doing so again, because I think the magic there is just totally reasonable. Terramander's outrageous. Yeah. Silly card. It's an outrageously good card. So I remember during previous season, right, everyone's like, okay, well, this will probably slot into Modern or Legacy, but we're not sure how good it is. Is it as good as Delver or so on and so forth? I'm not going to say it's better than Delver or as good as it, because that's a one-of-a-kind card that's defined uh, Eternal formats for a while. This card's ridiculous. And it's hard for me to imagine that card not being good in other formats, given that you get to play Ponder and Brainstorm and Thought Scour and all the other things that you get to play. And those are one-mana versions of these cards that you just want to be playing in your deck anyway. And this deck has to play two mana versions of these cards like Charter Course and Discovery Dispersal and everything else like that. I don't see how this card doesn't see play in older formats and it being very, 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 very good because it was very good when we watched it this past weekend. Drake's is a really good deck. It's still a really good deck because Dive Down is still a really good card. And this deck is as good as Dive Down is for me end of the line. If Dive Down sucks, this deck's not very good. If Dive Down's awesome, this deck's very good. And if you're a person who doesn't know how to play around Dive Down accordingly, this is not good news for you. Oliver Hart is Andrew Jessup, your Season 2 Invitational Champion on the SGA Tour in 2018. Doesn't surprise me to see him doing well with anything because he's very skilled, but I think this deck is very, very good. And it's uh, a, a case of forgot about Dre to me because no one was talking about it coming in. I think you're right. There's a couple sideboard cards I just want to mention real quick. It has your Niv-Mizzet, which I know you, know you still think has a place in this format. I am iffy on Niv-Mizzet right now. I think it does have some things going against it, chief of which being it can kind of get outclassed in some games, which is almost unbelievable, but it can. But the card I really love in this sideboard, which I think is just primed to blow up and show up in some other places too, is Entrancing Melody. You now have a four mana control magic that can just take like an 8-8 Flying Trampler. That sounds pretty good to me. Or maybe it's taking like Whatever threat your opponent is producing, Entrancing Melody is a dramatic game changer that essentially, once it resolves, is never being reversed. And I feel like it's underlooked right now. It has some prime targets, and it's really drawing me towards these Drake decks. I'll also say, Cedric, to your point where Dive Down has to be good for this deck to be good, I agree. Or you could start playing Arc Like Phoenix too, and then you have actually a totally different deck, which has totally different positive matchups and negative matchups. And I think that's still something that needs to be explored too, that everyone has forgotten about. Arc Like Phoenix is still an incredible, incredible card that's dominating modern on a week-to-week basis. It's certainly good enough for standard. We've made it work before. We can make it work again. It's just a question of, is that the positioning you need? And if so, I think we'll see the deck move back in that direction. So there should be a place for blue red flying creatures who knows which flying creatures they will be but there's a place for that archetype somewhere in this format at all times it's just about which version of it you want i agree with you you have a deck you want to talk about brink of 5-0 teferi angel of grace frilled mystic cleansing novas absorb all these instants yeah. is a wilderness reclamation control deck that's not really trying to combo and this might be the way to go about doing business because Reclamation plus Frilled Mystic is very good. But I think I believe that Frilled Mystic is very good in general because we are living in a metagame where things are somewhat expensive in the format. And Frilled Mystic costing four mana, ignoring your red or Rakdos matchup, and potentially in some spots your mono white aggressive matchups or white splashing a color. This is just full blown time walk, counter a spell, keep rolling. And. There's some real value in that card being good. 
I'm not sure how I feel about Angel of Grace. I, I think it is okay. It is obviously not Archangel Avacyn, but few things are. But I think the idea behind this deck of, hey, I'm just a control deck and I'm not like a Nexus deck because Nexus is feels win more some of the time, I think is a good way to go about doing deck building. I think this deck is great. I have been playing something very, very similar to this few changes, basically like just making this what my list looks like. I think Warrant Warden is mostly better than Seal Away. I have absolutely loved that card. I think not playing the 26th land here is kind of bonkers, given that you're a Growth Spiral deck. And I also think it should probably be Memorial to Genius, because that card is very, very good in Wilderness Reclamation decks. Essentially, I've replaced the Frilled Mystics with Settle the Wreckage. I just didn't want to be that far behind to Mono Red, just because I'm mostly playing on Arena. I do think you can alter that depending on what your metagame looks like and find success. But this shell, this Wilderness Reclamation Bant Control deck, this can be the next big thing. It has the power level. It has access to the right cards in post-board and pre-board games. Look, Wilderness Reclamation is a silly card. It does a lot of silly things, and it can do them in a lot of contexts. And this context is underexplored as it stands now. And if people start turning their attention to this archetype, they may see something that they absolutely love, because I know I'm enjoying these games a lot with this deck. Yeah, I'm into this deck quite a bit. All right, let's go to my next deck. Here's a surprise one that longtime listeners of this podcast would never have expect me to want to talk about unless I was shitting on it because I'm going to talk about Mono Blue Shitters right now. Oh, I was going to do that one. Well, we can talk about it together. That's fine. We're both excited about the deck. We both have strong feelings here. My strong feelings are that this deck might just be awesome right now. And I've never said that. I promise you. You have have never heard me say those words before. This particular build I have some issues with. I'm not a huge Warkite Marauder fan. I think the Miscloaked Heralds can come and go. I like Terramander is a real magic card. I would much rather see that in this deck. Uh, and I think the, what's what's the one blue merfolk? Benethic Explorers or something like that? Yeah, Benthic something. Yeah, so I, I think that card is quite good too, especially once you start playing Essence Capture, which is another card that I really like in the format right now. This deck is uniquely positioned because it really beats up on the Wilderness Reclamation decks, and maybe a lot of things beat up on the Wilderness Reclamation decks in their Bant form. I think it's kind of lacking good matchups as it stands right now, but this especially beats up on those decks really hard. I'm hearing from people that with the right configuration, the mono-red matchup has started to turn towards the blue deck, which is an interesting thing. I, I can't confirm that. I haven't actually switched to, the, to be a mono-blue player yet. I haven't made the transition, but... I'm thinking very carefully about it because I I just see a lot of things that really line up well with the format. And the thing about this deck in a post-Crisis world is that it doesn't seem like the Flying Jellyfish is a card you would be happy to Essence Capture. That's kind of counterintuitive because it has a cast trigger. But the exchange of mana going on in the circumstance where you get to Essence Capture a large Crisis is so, so good for these mono blue decks that are able to generate, you know, speedy board presence and capitalize on other counter magic like Wizards Retort to keep their creatures safe and dive down to protect them from spot removal spells. The games where the game plan comes together for mono blue against the Soltai decks are going to be just fine. They really are. And if that's the sticking point 
where you're like, can I make it have a good matchup against Sultai? I think the answer is actually yes. And it requires some careful deck building, carefully considering your options, but it can be done. And that's an exciting place for this mono blue deck to be at. I think this deck is good. I actually think it's quite good. And I'm pretty excited about that. Like it's an easy deck to make fun of, but I actually think it's just surprisingly good at what it's trying to do. Uh, and it's poking a hole in the metagame. First of all, this deck has to just absolutely destroy Wilderness Reclamation. I would be shocked if it didn't. My biggest question about this deck is you're obviously mono blue because of Tempest Jin. That's the reason that you're doing this. And is it appropriate to do that? Or is it appropriate to be Simic Merfolk mm. with Curious Obsession and try to blend those two decks together? I think that's a fair question. And I think there are other angles you could play if you wanted to abandon Tempest Jin, which are completely unexplored. I mean, what if you wanted to do Thief of Sanity? That sounds like a very different deck. You have to prepare some f- for some very different circumstances, but there's something there. You know, maybe you're like a Thought Scour and you have Terramander and your Terramanders get bigger faster because you're Thought Scouring as well. Or excuse me, uh, Thought Erasuring. There's interesting things you could do that involve getting away from Tempest Jin, which are absolutely, completely, and totally unexplored right now. And I think it's in our best interest to turn our eyes in that direction. Quick hypothetical. Just thought of this right now because I might be a little tired because I've been awake for a long time and had a long day. But I'm just going to run it out there for the entire audience to call me a moron, including you. You ready? Let's hear it. So, like, what is this deck's bad matchups? (laughs) So, historically, Mono Red has been problematic. Okay. I don't know where the white matchup falls i think i would expect that matchup to not be great but again i've mostly spent all of my time bashing this deck and not play it so i don't want to present myself as an expert i would just say my instinct would be previously mono red and previously the white decks and if i'm wrong you can feel free to yell at me wherever it is you imaginarily yell at me okay so i don't know the answer to that question either i was just scrolling through mythic spoiler and i was just going like I don't know. Is there a reason to play 15 copies of Persistent Petitioners in the sideboard? Oh, come on. That can't possibly be right, can it? Dude, it only takes four of them, and 12 cards is a lot. So where do you want to do it? I don't know. That's why I asked what the bad match was for. I I don't know if you could do this against a mid-range deck or something like that, but you might already just be good enough against mid-range where that's not a thing you need to be doing. I was just thinking, you know, I'm just exploring avenues that people probably aren't exploring, and 15 of that card in the sideboard's a lot, obviously. And I don't know if there are any other advisors in the deck. And I'm probably a little sleepy. But, you know, I like to think of things. And just you people who are listening to the podcast, you just keep that in the back of your head like Huatli. Just, it could happen. I'm going to put that one way further back than Huatli. Like, <laughs> Huatli has a nice a nice bench to, like, rest on. I'm I'm pushing the persistent petitioners way back in the corner of my brain. Like I don't want to hear from those guys for a very long time, but they can stay you, there. I'll, I'll give I them. I hope a you space. get. I hope you get got then. Oh, I will. You know it's coming. It's just a matter of time. All right. Do you want a replacement deck? Since I since I stole yours, we can give you one more shot. Raging tilt monster five zero with Murphle. Yeah, I, I think this is basically Emma Handy's list. Is that correct? Yeah, very very close. I don't think that Emma had deep root waters where uh, raging okay. tilt monster does. It feels like there's a deck here, but I don't think it has enough interaction for me to be happy with. First of all, I think we're in a format where four four copies of Spell Pierce is probably just correct in your main deck. Spell Pierce looked great, incredible all weekend. It was absolutely backbreaking every time it was cast. Yeah, so, 
you know, like I get why this deck is playing incubation and congruity. I get that. I'm not, I haven't played with deep root water, so I can't say if I'm sold on that card or not. And then obviously there's some powerful cards here like Kamina, which is a payoff. Merfolk, Mistbinder, and Trickster are both good. Silvergill Adept is a key cog to the deck, so on and so forth. It just feels like, especially because you get to play unclaimed territory within your mana base, that there's a deck here. I And maybe maybe it's just not a deck that has a lot of wiggle room to it because you're just a tribal deck, and so there's not a lot you can do. But it right. kind of feels like there's something going on here. The only thing, and this continues to be my main sticking point with Merfolk, is that that incubation incongruity slot. Like, I know why it's there. You need some spell that can deal with something once in a while, right? Like, at some point, there is going to be a creature you must answer. You you basically can't just ignore your opponent. Like, that's not a successful way to play Magic, for the most part, where you just try and play Solitaire and hope that things work out in your favor, because eventually they will adjust and beat you. This deck is essentially asking, am I allowed to play Solitaire? At some point, there is going to be a spell that properly fills this slot, which is equal parts interaction and, you know, aggression, something like Vapor Snag is the card that always comes to mind. Like imagine if this deck had Vapor Snag, it would be so good. That's exactly what this deck wants. And it's just lacking a little bit now. Someday it's going to get something and eventually Merfolk will win a tournament. I'm quite sure of it. I'm still not sure we're there though. I wouldn't be surprised if this deck is just supposed to play a lot of main deck copies of Tempest Jin or Tempest Caller, excuse me. Stop trying to interact with your opponent. Just tap all their creatures and kill them. Right. Stop pretending you care about anything. Like, yeah. Like what creature do I care about? You got like a wild growth walker and and like I'm some Simic deck and I'm I'm casting hydroid crises and trying to like solidify the game. Okay. All your creatures are tapping your deck. Just tap them. Yeah. Well, I, I like it. I mean, this deck needs some kind of drastic measures, and that's as close to a wrath as this deck is going to get. So yeah. maybe that's the way this deck goes. Who knows? I'm also not convinced Deep Root Waters is good. I'll leave that to the Merfolk experts, of which I am not one. So as I said, we have talked for an incredible length of time. We are two of the most loquacious people on the planet, apparently. Do you want to give a final takeaway as I get ready to head to Baltimore this weekend? I know you have the weekend off. What what are you expecting to see when we look at the standard seed? Well, in in most instances, it takes two weeks for people to adjust in real life. It's very easy for people to adjust uh, online because it's clicks of a mouse. It, it normally takes people two weeks to adjust. They take a look at the results of Indian online. They say, okay. I'd like to test those decks. I'm going to stick with what I know with some minor changes. And then the following week when we're in Dallas and standard, I expect to see some different decks. Perhaps I'll be wrong, but I've been doing this for long enough that I, I would be shocked if that were the case. That said, I expect a lot of Sultai again because it's so safe and it's good straight up. And that is enough, especially in a team segment to say, okay, you know what? I just want to play. Make, let's make sure we have a good deck. Okay. Let's not take any risks. Let's make sure that we're just playing good decks. And once you get past that, it's like, okay, well, then just play Salt Eye and, I don't know, play like a Biogenic Goose or something. And that's what I expect. The the gambling and the risk-taking will take place online as people flesh things out. But for a real-life tournament, especially one that's team-constructed, players will play it safe, especially in standard this early on. And maybe we'll see a little bit of interesting and different stuff in the modern seat and legacy seat. But buckle up for some Vivian Reads, my friend. I think that you're exactly right. I think people will play it safe. I think Sultai will be the most represented deck. 
in the standard seat. But I think something's going to come away from this tournament wowing us. And I don't think it's going to be Sultai. I think we're going to see something new here. I don't, I don't, I just can't put my finger on it. There's something brewing with these wilderness reclamation decks and it may not be the busted version. We all thought it wouldn't surprise me to see a bant control deck leaning on wilderness reclamation, doing very, very well deep into the tournament on Sunday. Uh, I can't wait to find out though. So Cedric, it is question time. As you know, we head over to the game podcast discord, take a question from one of our lovely patrons every single week and man, do I have the softballest question of all time for you? This is like tailor made for you, Cedric. I'm just gonna let I'm gonna tee this one up for you. You can go ahead and knock it right out of the park. Chris Malecki asks, based on the current information available about organized play and the future direction of competitive magic, what action would you, Cedric Phillips, suggest the aspiring grinder take to continue to pursue magic? Anything come to mind, Cedric, that you want to advise the aspiring grinder to do to pursue magic? Uh, I don't get to talk that long, do I? <laughs> well, I would uh, first. The first thing I would do is I would open up an internet browser and I would type in StarCityGames.com. Mm, then, well done. I w- oh yes, you can play along if you'd like. Then. I would go click on an article by Jerry Thompson or Brian Gottlieb, and in which case you will see that you are not allowed to do that because you will hit a brick wall. Well, you get just a little taste of the article, and then you'll say, I want more than a little taste, and you will buy a premium subscription, and then you will get the full taste of the article that is very well written by them and edited by myself. After that, you will say, I want to learn more about Brian Gottlieb and Jerry Thompson, and you will discover that they have a podcast that you are listening to right now, You'll become a patron of that podcast and enjoy their Discord, which is fantastic. And then you'll go to an SAG tour event and you'll realize that we put on one hell of a show and you will enjoy it and you'll want to play in more of them. Those are the easy things to do. Look, magic's changing. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what's going to happen, but the game's not going anywhere. So there's no need to panic about anything. Enjoy the game that you want to enjoy it. You know, ideally, you enjoy it through the things that we produce at Star City and the SAG tour. Um, but and for my money, you know, those are the best places to grind magic anyway, and they have been for a handful of years now. I'm not throwing shade. I play in Grand Prix because I want to play in a Pro Tour. They're not good EV. <laughs> it's the problem. So if you want to grind in a tournament that's like done quickly and ran well and has great coverage and cares about the players, and you you come to the tour. That's what you do. But it's your call to make on how you want to enjoy magic. And if you want to chase the Pro Tour, then Grand Prix is the place you're supposed to go. And like I said, I play in them. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to enjoy magic. But, you know, as, as all of this stuff is changing, Brian, like it's not going to change in a, in a negative way, in my opinion. It's only going to change in a positive way. It's just changing. This is what happens when regime changes take place. People get relieved of their duties. Changes happen. And you see what happens if you follow sports. When a new coach comes in, it's not like the old people stay. Most of the time they get fired. It's just what happens. There's a new regime at Wizards right now that's changing things. And it's going to change things in a way that we're not used to. But, you know, this is just all kind of part of it. So I think that ultimately everything's going to be okay. I also am of the opinion that things will be okay. I hate to see people who have long-seated and deep-rooted ties to the game kind of pushed out 
which there's some of going on. But you're right. I mean, as things change, the sad consequence of that, and if things are going to move forward, I think that there's just a, a general pervasive feeling of unease right now, right? Like that's what's really seeped into the magic community. It's just like underinformed and nervous. But the truth is, as a player, there's always exceptions to this. I don't want to downplay the fact that some people have kind of had their life plans uprooted by everything that's gone on over the last six or so months. And the life that they were living six months ago kind of doesn't exist anymore. And that's really unsettling and really scary for people. And I do empathize with them wholeheartedly. I really and truly do. I can just say, wait and see what's replacing these old things. Maybe they'll be better. Maybe they'll be worse. There'll always be a home on the SCG tour. Cedric will welcome you with open arms. I know that. I think that the community would benefit from understanding that we've all basically come to this for enjoyment and entertainment and to do something we love. And I think that the enjoyment, entertainment, and the love of the game is going to remain regardless of what happens on the OP side. And that's really what I'm holding on to right now. I also think that as long as there are people who want to play magic in some sort of quasi-professional fashion in a circuit, someone will fill that need. SCG does a tremendous, tremendous job of filling that need. In the past, you know, GPs have filled that need, and maybe they still will going forward. We really don't know. Maybe online tournaments are looking to fill more of that need. Whatever it ends up being, it's still magic. Take a deep breath. Let things sort themselves out. I do feel for the people who are moving on to other areas, you know, people associated with coverage who may not have that opportunity anymore. I mean, I I just did my first show. I know it's a freaking blast and I hate to see anyone lose the chance to do something they love. And I think right now a lot of people have lost that chance and I truly do feel for them. I hope that the community finds a new place for a lot of those people and uh, we're all able to get back to some sense of normalcy and hopefully not even normalcy, but greater heights. And I do think that is possible given how much enthusiasm we saw this past weekend for magic. I mean, the one thing that was pervasive, Cedric, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, is that people were freaking stoked on the set, on magic in general, on arena. Like people are just feeling it right now. The numbers were insane for the SCG Indianapolis broadcast. Just insane. Yeah, no, people are very into magic right now. Um, and with good reason. I mean, the sets are fun. We're in a great world with Ravnica. Ravnica is always a great world. So there's a lot to like there. So I, again, like you, I empathize with some of the changes that are going on, but I try to look at things with a pretty wide eyed perspective and see not just what's happening, but why it could possibly be happening. To me, this is just something, this is just a fundamental shift where, you know, someone, a higher up, they want things to be a certain way who might be new or may have been there for a long time and is finally put in a position of power to make the changes that, they, that they've always wanted to make. And it is affecting people, some people in a negative way, uh, potentially, because we don't know what the fallout of everything is. But again, this is what happens when new people come in. And, you know, like, just as an example, uh, to someone who was listening to this, imagine like you were someone who just got a job at a new place and you have the ability to bring in the people you want to bring in. 
you might take the opportunity to do that. Or you might, you want to make the changes that you've always wanted to make. You've been given the opportunity to do that. It might not look the way that you want it to, to other people that are making those changes, but you have a vision that you believe in and you're going to execute that vision to the best of your ability because you believe in that vision. Sometimes you have to make some difficult decisions. I'm not happy to see people lose their jobs or anything like that for people who may have been doing coverage for Channel Fireball or Wizards of the Coast or Greg Gibson being a photographer, all that, all that stuff. I'm very sympathetic and empathetic to those things. I'm just saying be mad once you have our be mad once the announcements are made, depending on what the announcements are. Once the dust settles and we see actually what the heck is going on, and yes, it's annoying to not be communicated with, but be mad then. Because we just don't know enough to be mad now. I think that's a smart take, and we would all benefit from it. So, Cedric, you are now a veteran of this cast. I know you know what to do. Give it to us one time. That's my baritone voice. Game! Good luck.